You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Our Connection with the Elemental World, translated by Simon Blacksland Delang. This is Lecture 3, given in Dornach, on the 15th of November, 1914. Yesterday I gave some initial indications of the extent to which the earth itself is an inspirer for human beings. For in so vast a realm of inquiry, it is, of course, impossible to do more than this. It is important, quite especially in our time, to be aware that such connections as we have been considering exist. For man is currently at the point in his earthly evolution where he is emancipating himself from this earthly influence and needs to open himself up to those influences that come not from the earthly world, but from the spiritual world that surrounds the earth. This determination to imbue human faculties, man's thinking and feeling, with something that transcends purely earthly phenomena, lies at the foundation of our anthroposophical endeavors. Indeed, the whole tendency of modern cultural development is in harmony with these aims of spiritual science. In this respect, there are two things of which people in our time need to become conscious. The first is that as regards his own soul-being, man belongs to a world which does not reveal itself to the outward senses, but lies behind this sense-perceptible world. That in his innermost soul-nature, he belongs to a world which he can approach neither by means of sense-observation, nor by drawing logical conclusions based upon such observation. It will be the task of our time to develop great clarity about this point, that all knowledge which the outer senses impart and a philosophy that has its foundation solely in such knowledge cannot come near to the true mystery of the human soul. The second is a truth which is familiar to you from your involvement in spiritual science, even though you know that it is still remote from the general awareness of people today. I refer to the important truth of repeated earthly lives, that the human soul is not confined to the body in which it lives between birth and death, and to everything connected with this body, but goes from life to life. Because these two questions that the soul belongs to a world that lies behind the sense-perceptible world and that it goes from life to life, are among the most important issues of our time and therefore need to be understood, I have added a chapter in the second volume of my title Riddles of Philosophy, where I have considered these two truths in the context of the evolutionary journey of mankind. For there is an urgent need in our time that increasing numbers of people learn to understand both these truths. As this book, titled The Riddles of Philosophy, is one that is not specifically directed toward anthroposophists, but to all who can read and understand what they have read, 
The attempt had to be made, however briefly, to examine these two truths with the greatest precision. It may be true to say that at a deeper level of consciousness, people in our time do direct their thoughts toward these truths, and I am initially saying no more than this. Such tendencies to direct thoughts toward these truths can indeed be observed everywhere. I have tried on occasion to name modern cultural figures who do have an inclination toward these thoughts. I should like to cite another example. One of the greatest figures of the nineteenth century is without doubt Emerson, who writes in a language which, while not being philosophical in a pedantic sense, is particularly impressive. Whether he is speaking about nature or about the human race, Emerson shows again and again how the outward structure of the world, which man perceives with his senses and understands with his intellect, is merely an outer sheath, a phantasmagoria, and that one only arrives at truth if one tries to reach behind this phantasmagoria. But a mind such as Emerson's goes beyond this. In order to exemplify what I mean, I should like to refer to one of his many remarkable books titled Representative Men. In this book he cites Plato as the representative of all of humanity's philosophical endeavors. Swedenborg as the representative of mankind's mystical strivings, Montaigne, a remarkable figure from the 16th century, as the representative of skepticism, Shakespeare as the representative of the realm of poetry, Goethe as the representative of the skill of writing, and Napoleon as the man of action, the representative of the will. Emerson achieved something highly significant with this book, Particular human qualities are singled out and related to certain individuals. It would be an interesting study to try to discern how Plato is the representative of philosophical endeavor and Montaigne, similarly, the representative of skepticism. This book is one of the greatest achievements of the human mind. Now, it is remarkable that Emerson gives a particularly affectionate picture of Montaigne although one discovers this only if one reads this chapter on Montaigne with quite some thoroughness. This is, moreover, highly significant with respect to Emerson's inclination toward a spiritual scientific conception of the world. Anyone who seriously embarks upon a study of this world conception will be aware that everything has two sides, and that when one tries to express a truth what one says is somewhat one-sided, and the other aspect inevitably has to lurk somewhere in the background. The skeptic who is acutely aware that whenever one formulates a truth in strict terms one is inevitably in the wrong is deeply affected by the soul-spiritual fluid that is constantly present in the human soul and prevents one from the moment of one's contact with the spiritual world from advancing a sharply outlined truth without also indicating that there is some justification for the opposite point of view. It is this sense of being affected by a feeling that derives from the world of spirit that makes Montaigne a person of real significance. But this is not what I was wanting to say. 
I wanted to draw your attention to the way that Emerson relates how he came to know about Montaigne. He says that he had found a volume of Montaigne in his father's library, but didn't understand it at the time. When he had graduated from college, he read the book again, and then had the overwhelming urge to acquaint himself sentence by sentence with what Montaigne had written. And he did so, following the call of this great urge. Now we see in the chapter that Emerson wrote about Montaigne, that he was searching for a way of expressing why he was suddenly so taken up with him and had begun to be wholly immersed in his work. He finds no better way of expressing this than to say, quote, It seemed to me as if I had myself written the book in some former life. Close quote. From this you can see how someone who was a contemporary spirit in the fullest sense of the word, a man who was wholly in tune with the demands of the present time, felt compelled to express what lived most intimately in his soul by writing something that is fully in accordance with the spiritual scientific truth of reincarnation. He can find no better way of expressing himself and is obliged to avail himself of the idea of repeated earthly lives. Something of this kind is remarkably characteristic and enormously significant. And this leads us to form a connection with the thoughts that we formulated yesterday. If we consider the foremost minds of our time, and Emerson is one of them, we have, on the one hand, if they are people of the rank of Emerson, the earthly knowledge that they have assimilated insofar as they are involved with the evolutionary process of the earth. They know what one embraces today as a human being. They know that if one is placed in a certain location of the earth, one speaks a particular language and so forth, that wherever one is, it is customary to pass on these things to children and young people and hence to foster what is referred to as education. This knowledge which is handed down in this way to a people or national group is a knowledge of a broad perspective. One can well say such a thing if one sees how Emerson actually carries out what he undertakes. We know that when he had to give a lecture, it was as though what he said poured forth directly from his mind as he was saying it. Everything appeared to be improvised. If he was visited on a day when he was to be giving a lecture, the visitors were able to see that he strewed throughout the room all the notes from which he had gathered together what he had to say, about the external aspect of his subject. But behind what he imparted in this way to mankind, there were some more intimate aspects, such as the instance that I have mentioned, when the idea of repeated earthly lives shone through in a very genuine way. One can see that when even the leading representatives of our time have a deep feeling about such truths and are, moreover, able to express them, they do so very modestly and are as yet reluctant to introduce these truths to the realm whence outward knowledge has its origin. If we now approach this matter in a spiritual scientific way, we would have to look at it with different eyes, for our time is entrusted with the task of bringing what has hitherto been held back within the soul and only hinted at occasionally to the full clarity of understanding, of embodying it in appropriate forms of knowledge. 
so that what formerly welled forth from the souls of those with the greatest insight can become a self-evident truth that can be easily understood. So we can see very clearly how in his deeply meaningful lectures Emerson would speak a few words that demonstrated his knowledge about the individual life of his immediate surroundings and then, a little later, said something about Shakespeare. Thus he assembles a great store of earthly knowledge and then a remark slips out in the middle of it all that comes from the intimate depths of his soul. What is the source of such a remark? This question can only be answered if one considers all aspects of human nature. In his life on earth, a human individual is aware only of the most insignificant part of his nature. He knows only that part of his life which is spent between waking up and going to sleep. The other part of his life is spent in sleep, and this part of human life has many, many aspects. It would be true to say that for a great number of people this life during sleep entails that they come in contact with elemental cosmic beings who are connected with lower manifestations of human nature than the manifestations associated with the day. Between falling asleep until waking up, that is, in the realm of elemental life, people engage in all sorts of antics which would for them be unheard of in normal life. It is not an unfamiliar idea that dreams are often something to be ashamed of. This is a common experience that anyone can have. People do all sorts of undesirable things when they are asleep, in company that is not exactly good, and which appeals to their passions and lower impulses, and is far worse than the company which they have cultivated during waking life. When one understands this, one has a much better understanding of historical events. In order that this habit of larking about is not extended to physical life, it is necessary that people today cultivate the ability not to attribute too much value to their dreams. They will, therefore, very easily forget their dreams, forget all that they have been up to in their dreams, and this will be beneficial to them in that they need to be prepared for entering into the spiritual world while they are awake. Whereas in former times, the idea was that people were enabled to enter the spiritual world during sleep. As a matter of fact, it is not so long ago, as is generally thought, that there was a stronger awareness of this world. Again, I shall give you an example. There is a picture by Albrecht Dürer, which has puzzled many people and especially experts in the field. The theme of this etching is essentially that a satyr-like, fawn-like figure is depicted who is holding a female figure in his embrace. From the background, another female figure appears, approaching this pair with a punishing gesture, while close by stands a Herculean-looking male figure who holds a cub in his hand which keeps the aggressive female figure away from the group comprising the woman and the satyr, so that she cannot come near them. It is quite astonishing, to say the least, what trouble learned scholars have taken to understand this picture, which is generally called Hercules. However, there is nothing in the familiar legend of Hercules that is suggestive of what is depicted here. 
So people ask themselves, quote, how did Dürer come to portray this scene? Close quote. The strangest ideas have been put forward. One can see how helpless Hermann Grimm was, for example, when confronted by this picture. He could not make head or tail of it and proposed the most curious ideas as ways of explaining it. How can we understand this situation? Why is it that people can make nothing of this picture? Because neither Hermann Grimm nor the other scholars know what Albrecht Dürer still knew, that in sleep human beings are still able to enter a spiritual world. Today this awareness has disappeared. But Dürer still knew that there are, for example, men who get up to all sorts of mischief when they are asleep in company with the elemental world, men who are generally perfectly well-behaved, but who, during sleep, fall back into the world of desires and engage in all sorts of frivolous and pointless activities. In this picture by Dürer we see the satyr and Hercules with the club. The good Hercules, as he stands by, would very much like to be this satyr, but he lives in the physical world, in a moral world, on the physical plane, and his wife will not let him. So she comes and tries to drive him away. However, he rather likes what he sees and holds her back. We see here an inner soul process and know that Albrecht Dürer still knew something about all this. Much in the art of centuries, not so very distant from our own, can therefore be explained because there was then an awareness of man's connection with the elemental world of the spirit that borders directly upon the physical world. But if we now turn our thoughts to individuals who are as worthy as Emerson, we should make it quite clear that they are not larking about when they are asleep, but that what they do is above reproach. When they are in the spiritual world with their ego and astral body, they have a relationship to truths, to what is to live amongst mankind as true anthroposophy. They become aware of what is to become the physical knowledge of the future. One could say that Emerson receives something of this kind in sleep. This is why it finds expression in what he has to say about physical life as he surveys the full extent of earthly life with his physical senses and intellect in so modest and intimate a way. Now, it would not be in accordance with the rightful path of human evolution if it were simply to remain the case that human beings should perceive what lies behind sensory appearances, the phantasmagoria of the senses, only while they are asleep, for it is of evolutionary significance that sleep life will increasingly cease to have a part to play in the quest for knowledge. It takes a great spirit, such as Emerson, to arrive at an idea such as repeated earthly lives from one's sleep life. Nevertheless, it must be possible for spiritual insights to come to humanity, to gain entry to human lives. Thus, whereas these truths have hitherto been proclaimed, as if in a kind of dawning light through individuals such as Emerson, in connection with the innermost life of the soul, there needs now to be a more earthly basis for understanding such truths in clear waking consciousness. The earthly aptitude must exist for feeling that it is perfectly natural to recognize these truths. 
You will be well aware from the fact that there are still only a handful of anthroposophists that this is not as yet perfectly natural, and all those who stand outside the anthroposophical movement regard us as fools or something of the kind. Our modern culture is not capable of recognizing these truths. People's natural temperament goes against it. The logical arguments that are put forward against spiritual science are, by and large, of little value, for people do not resist it on logical grounds, but rather because the forces of the earth have rendered them, in their nature, to be in general ill-disposed to receive such truths today. However, a time must come when human nature will be constituted in such a way that it will be possible to perceive these truths directly, just as mathematical truths can be perceived today. Man must be so organized that he can quite naturally perceive these truths. For this it is necessary that for the time between birth and death he is physically constituted and his brain configured in such a way that he is able to have such insights. In the sense of yesterday's deliberations, a relationship needs to be established between the spirits working within the earth and human beings, whereby the constitution of human beings is such that they are able to apprehend these truths. And this comes about in the way that I indicated yesterday through descriptions and drawings, namely that a stretch of land reaches out from east to west toward the three gulfs that I spoke of yesterday. This stretch of land is outwardly only a phantasmagoria and is in reality made up of spirits of earth. It is indeed the case that the spirits of this stretch of land exert an influence upon the human beings and form them physically in such a way that they perceive the truths of man's soul-spiritual constitution and repeated earthly lives. What minds of a more western inclination have to struggle to acquire from sleep will necessarily become a more self evident truth in waking life for those approaching from the east whose inclinations are oriented toward the evolution of mankind. The earth element prepares their bodies for what they need for evolution. This earthly realm is to the fullest extent what I explained to you yesterday, a wide-ranging organism which is ensouled and which from its soul life sends forth the earth spirits from time to time that so form and organize the human bodies that they are able to play their allotted part in evolution. You see, these things are extraordinarily deep and meaningful, and they will need to be studied very carefully if one is to be able to understand them. If one compares the earth as an ensouled and inspirited organism with man's status, as similarly being an organism with a soul and a spirit, there is a great difference between them. Through the outward aspect of his physical body, in which he does not actually live at all, but within which he is placed, he is related to the spirits of earth. Through his ether body, he is related to the spirits of water, through his astral body to the spirits of air, and through being united with the ego, he is related to the spirits of fire. When a person goes to sleep and leaves his physical and etheric bodies, 
he is living with his ego and astral body alone in relation to the warmth that pervades the earth and the air that flows and wafts through it. He is rested from everything that forms and fashions earth and water in his physical body. When he is asleep, he is actually wrenched away from everything that his physical and ether bodies accomplish as earthly essences. Air and warmth do, of course, also belong to the earth. They belong to the earth, but not to parts of the earth. Now, for man is a being of soul and spirit, warmth is the element in which he dwells as in his own elemental space. In the higher animals, a preparatory stage for this can be discerned. They have warmth of their own, not merely the warmth of their surroundings. They live in their soul domain, in their own warmth. Man has developed to a particular degree this living in his own warmth and having his own temperature. This is something that shuts him off from the varying conditions in the surrounding world. Warmth is, so to speak, something of which every human being has within himself his quantum, his particular portion, which he carries about with him. Here he dwells in his own ego. He is at home in warmth. In the element of air this is already less the case. And indeed, here the respective relationship to the earth is a significant factor. It makes a difference whether he is in the air of the heights, in the air on water, or on land. Here he enters into a relationship with what influences him from without. This then is how it is with man as an ensouled and inspirited organism. The very opposite is the case with the earth as an organism imbued with soul and spirit. What warmth is for man, earth is for the earth, the solid earthly realm. Warmth is for the earth the outermost realm, and its relationship to the ensouled earth is equivalent to the relationship that we have to the domain of earth. The earth is earth through and through, just as we are warmth through and through. The earth is outwardly differentiated with respect to warmth. To the extent that it stretches forth its limbs into ice-bound regions or into the sultry regions of the tropics, so does it open out its soul-being toward the warmth, just as we adapt our physical body to the region in which we are living. The earth is in this respect the exact opposite of man, and this is the basis of the cooperation between the earth and man as organisms endowed with a soul and a spirit. As a result of this cooperation, a process is enacted within the physical human body, whereby this physical body of man is able to participate rightly in the evolution of earth existence through the succession of nations and peoples specifically in those peoples who participated in mass migrations from east to west, there was a pronounced relationship of the earthly to the human elements. And this relationship could be envisaged by imagining a mighty being within the earth itself, a being who would make the resolve to intervene in evolution in the appropriate way, say, from the 20th century onward. At this point it has to say, I must guide certain spiritual beings up to my surface. 
I must enable them to become active in preparing physical bodies which are able to receive through the brain the truths that are needful at this time in the evolution of mankind. What I have just expressed should be seen as a thought that the earth has. This thought can be rightly understood only if it is grasped with genuine piety and reverence, if one apprehends it not as one does the thoughts of ordinary science, but if one regards it as something holy, as something that cannot be mentioned without a sense of reverence. For one is reminded of man's connection with the spiritual world, in that when such things are expressed, one is directly involved in the interrelationship between the human and spiritual worlds. Care, therefore, needs to be taken that the necessary atmosphere of feeling and receptivity is present when such things are expressed. This is of immense importance in this context. It would even be appropriate to say that things such as this should not be expressed unless they are imbued with a prayer-like feeling or mood. A vista of the spiritual worlds needs to irradiate our thinking when we approach such thoughts. It is in order that this can happen quite naturally through the mediation of external surroundings that our building is being erected, and everything that will become manifest within it is being fashioned with this intention. Thus, in what I have just described to you, we have an example of how the earth, in its earthly aspect, works spiritually through what is contained in its solid element, how it forges and fashions all that lives on it in the course of evolution. If, on the other hand, we go more toward the west, we find different relationships. Yesterday I described to you a relationship where the west interacts with the east, where the watery element sets its course toward the east like a mighty being in the form of the three great gulfs, which are an expression of the threefold nature of the soul, and which the spiritually attuned peoples of ancient Finland experienced as Vainamoinen, Ilmarinen, and Lemminkainen, and are now, more prosaically, known as the gulfs of Finland, Bothnia, and Riga. Thus in the ancient Finnish people there was an interplay between what emanates from the fluid element and what derives from the solid element. In the Finnish people the element that constitutes in particular man's etheric aspect and has a refining influence on his physical aspect, namely the fluid element, was united with the element of earth, with what derives from earth and constitutes man's physical aspect. The question may be asked as to the significance that a people such as the ancient Finns, who accomplished such an eminent task in the course of earthly evolution, still has in later times. It indeed has a significance in the whole course of evolution that such a people continues to exist, that it does not disappear from the earth when it has accomplished its mission. Just as an individual human being retains a living memory, of the thoughts that he has had at a certain stage of his life for some later period, so must earlier peoples live on as a conscience, as a memory that can continue to exert a living influence 
on what happened later on, in truth as a conscience. One could say in this connection that what the Finnish people have preserved will be the conscience of Europe. A time must come if human hearts are to be filled with an understanding of the tasks of evolution, when from amongst the Finnish peoples the ideas of the Kalevala will blossom once more, when this wonderful epic will be spiritualized and imbued with modern anthroposophical concepts, and when it will again be brought to the consciousness of the whole of Europe in all its rich profundity. The European peoples have venerated the epics of Homer. However, the epic of the Kalevala had its source in still deeper depths of the soul, even if it is not as yet possible to perceive this. It will nevertheless become possible if the teachings of spiritual science are used in the appropriate way for explaining the spiritual phenomena of earth evolution. An epic such as the Kalevala cannot be preserved without being maintained in a living state of existence, without souls who, while dwelling in an earthly body, are closely related to the creative forces of the Kalevala. It remains there as a living conscience. It can continue to exert an influence if not its words alone, but what has lived within it can go on living, if there is a center from which it can ray forth. What matters is that there is such a center, just as the thoughts that we have had previously can be there in our later life. In the West, it is more a question of what forms and fashions the etheric body. Parenthesis, these are difficult truths, and you will have to make the best of it, because I do not have the possibility, which I hope may arise sometime in the course of earthly evolution, to explain in a whole year what I am having to explain in an hour. You will have to undertake to amplify a lot of what I have said through your own thoughts and ponder it meditatively. It will then begin to make complete sense to you. I must especially emphasize that you should not try to approach these matters with rash judgments or hastily formed feelings. Close parenthesis. In the West, then, the influence is more upon the etheric body, which had to be formed and fashioned in the same way, albeit at an earlier time, as has to occur for the East with the physical body. You see, it is very easy at this point to allow misunderstandings to creep in, for the distinctions are extremely subtle. When, for example, one sees in the West that for its peoples the essential thing is that the etheric body has been formed more by the spirits of water, it follows that because the physical body is an impression of the etheric body, the physical body has also been formed from the forces of water. But the point is that in the East, the forces have a more direct influence upon the physical body. It is therefore necessary to keep one's mind focused on what really matters. Making subtle distinctions of this kind is beyond the capacity of ordinary science. It sees that the physical body of someone from the East has a particular configuration and that the Western physical body has a different one. It cannot see more than this. Only spiritual science is able to perceive such distinctions. It often happens that 
when one is saying something totally different, people have the impression that one is actually saying the same thing as before. Yesterday, for example, I needed to say that the essential thing for the Asiatic peoples is that the forces that build up the physical body reside in their own ether body. Today I am saying that for the peoples of the West, the ether body is formed out of the forces of water. If you take everything into account, you will understand that in olden times the situation with the peoples of Eastern Europe was that the ether body had to be formed, and now in our time, the physical body. Whereas in the case of the peoples of the West, the situation is that the ether body is now being formed once the physical body has already received its special character from without. That their ether body is exposed directly to the genie of the sea, the genie of water. The peoples of the West are what they are because of impulses that enter into the ether body. Where impulses enter primarily into the ether body, the focus is more upon time than on space. And what matters is the way that impulses exert their influence in the succession of time. If we look toward the east, we see thoughts welling up out of the earthly domain in order to prepare man for a future evolution. If we turn our gaze toward the west, we see thoughts or forces bubbling forth from the fluid element which form ether bodies in the sequence of time. And we see how already in olden times formative forces were at work upon man's ether body in the west and right into central Europe so that it might live its own independent life in a living outward bodily aspect. What does this mean? It means, my dear friends, that there were people living in former times in the west of Europe whose way of life was the outward manifestation of their ether body. Just as now, when the ether body has already been exerting its influence through these old impulses, man is working out of the physical body. In those times, people were living who still had a living interconnection with the spiritual world, and especially with the elemental world. This is the way it was then. These times when the genie of the fluid element spoke in such a living way to the ether body of Western man are already over. But when the ether body is being addressed in this way, things are different from how they are in our time, when man's physical body is what is primarily being called upon. Man's physical body is addressed in such a way that an impression is made upon his senses, so that in addition to certain aspects of behavior, he acquires a knowledge which is connected with sensory impressions. As regards their habitual behavior and what lived within their inner being, these people of the West in olden times still had a connection with the elemental world. Among the Celts, there were people who knew as much about the elemental world as we know today about the physical world, people to whom the elemental world was not closed, who could speak of nature genie, water genie, and earth genie in the way that we speak of trees, plants, mountains, and clouds. 
and who had direct access to these genii of nature. Indeed, the particular character of life in Europe derives from these circumstances, from the fact that whereas in our time influences are exerted upon the physical body by way of the senses, in those ancient times they were exerted upon man's etheric body. The influence of this formative process upon man's etheric body then continued, but in such a way that the etheric body's relationship to the genie of water became increasingly unconscious, with the result that conscious communication with the nature spirits ceased to be a significant factor. How did this come about? The situation in France, for example, was that the wave of Celtic evolution was succeeded by a wave of Romance evolution, so that the Celtic element was pervaded by a Romance element. In the interplay between the Celtic and Romance elements, we can discern two impulses, an old impulse which fosters a direct connection between the elemental world and the ether body, and a new impulse, that of the Romance influence which likewise affects the ether body, but in such a way that its influence is of the nature of an historical wave, making it possible for the reawakening of ancient Greek culture to take place in France, to which I have referred in previous lectures. If we want to understand the kind of human being that we find in the West, we need to evaluate the various impulses that flow into the ether body in the right way. We have spoken about certain characteristic phenomena with respect to influences upon the physical body and upon the ether body. When we come to consider the middle region, the circumstances are somewhat different. Here we are confronted by something which is, I would say, much less defined, something that is far harder to characterize with any clarity. For both spirits of the earth element and spirits of the fluid element are in this context working directly upon the physical body. As you can see, this is a realm of transition. In the West, spirits of the fluid element are directly influencing the ether body. In Central Europe, the spirits of the fluid element reduce their activity, and certain spirits of the earthly element join forces with them. They work directly upon the physical body and less strongly upon the ether body. The spirits of the earthly element refine the physical body, as you will find if you go further east. So Central Europe has in one way or another to do with everything that provides Europe over long periods of time with physical bodies that are accessible to the fluid element and to the solid element. And we can therefore see the inevitable complexities of what flows into the evolution of mankind. We see how from this reservoir in Central Europe, the people of the Franks, prepared in the way that I have described by the genie of the fluid and the solid element, make their presence felt amongst the Celtic Romance peoples. And only then does what we can discern as the effective force in the evolution of humanity emerge. The Franks who remain behind, and the Saxons are also associated with them, preserved the particular attribute of receiving primarily in their physical body 
what derives from the watery and earthly spirits. The Franks who migrated westward united their being with that essential quality that results from the direct influence of the genie of the sea, which becomes even more significant through embracing the historical aspect of the Romance element. Thus the impulses become interwoven with one another. We can therefore see that especially if we want to characterize Western Europe, we shall never come to understand it unless we take into account everything that influences the etheric body. If we want to characterize Central Europe, we would have to say that it is more a question of what forms and shapes the physical body. Now we may see that impulses such as I have described are concentrated in certain centers where they manifest their particular characteristics. Two such centers which relate to one another in a really characteristic way are Central Europe on the one hand and the British Isles on the other. In Central Europe where this is manifested most strongly, we find what I have referred to as the solid element, where the physical body is imbued with what comes from the genie of the liquid realm and the genie of the solid realm, and hence where these are mingled together. While in the British Isles we find especially, and to a greater extent than in France, for example, the influence of what derives from the genie of water. The consequence of this is that in these two regions there live people who fundamentally carry the same impulses. But in the former case they bear these impulses within the physical body and are adapted to everything that is associated with the working of these genii in the physical body, while those in the British Isles bear them within the ether body and therefore have the task of enabling everything connected with the impulses of the etheric body to become a reality. If I were to formulate this in a somewhat grotesque fashion, I could say that when comparing a German and an Englishman, one notices a difference if one observes them as physical bodies. One begins to see a similarity only if one compares the physical body of the German with the etheric body of the Englishman. Only then does it become clear that the same impulses, indeed the very same impulses, live in both. Everything that forms part of our outward vision of the phantasmagoria of the senses appears as a caricature. This may seem a surprising statement. But we only see things in their true form if we consider the living source and hence the truth of what we behold. Because beings in the world must collaborate, and this can hardly be otherwise since the world is a whole, it has to be so that certain impulses work on the one hand through the physical body and on the other hand through the ether body. That is how it has to be, for that is how a true collaboration comes about. As a result of this, a very special relationship can be discerned in the spiritual world between the German world and the world of Britain. I have in a previous lecture explained this very special relationship in the context of East and West. When I showed you how East and West were engaged in a struggle in the spiritual world, brought about by the difference in the souls coming from an Eastern body and the souls coming from a Western body. 
What is brought about by the circumstances that I have described is of a somewhat different nature. I must also ask that you do not take what I have to say today as a theme for speculative intellectual inquiry. It is necessary to observe these things in the spiritual world, otherwise one will not be able to arrive at the truth. A harmony gradually begins to develop between what is reflected from Central Europe and the British Isles, a sense of accord, a true spiritual bond that has by degrees been gaining strength to the point where one can say that from a spiritual point of view no souls on earth love one another more than those living in Central Europe and those living in the British Isles. These souls seen spiritually are united in the strongest love. And this comes to expression in what we see before us now, so entangled have human affairs become. I would not say such things if they were based on unsound research and if they had not been arrived at through very painful experiences. You should not now try to systematize this by imagining that every alliance in the physical world is a war in the spiritual world, while a war in the physical world represents a bond in the spiritual world. The situation is as I have described it, and the fact that it comes to expression in the form of a war is the manifestation of how difficult it is in the materialistic culture of modern times for a spiritual fact to become an actual reality. Our age has not merely in words, but also in deeds, a resistance to recognizing what exists as a reality in the spiritual world. It tries to put forth the opposite of the true state of affairs in the spiritual world because the age of materialism resists acknowledging the spiritual world also in deeds. Hence the trends evident in the spiritual world toward establishing harmony between what has been achieved physically in Central Europe and etherically in the British Isles are completely submerged in the maya of the strife and mutual hatred that confronts us now. Those who are not anthroposophists may well feel a glow, a satisfaction in calling us fools, since the, the knowledge that emanates from the spiritual world is in complete contradiction to what can be observed on the physical plane. Nevertheless, we may be assured that the further evolution of mankind is dependent upon spiritual truths becoming discernible and upon human beings learning to see behind the sense-perceptible world. If this is to happen, Certain events of which I have been speaking over the course of these days, with at least some degree of clarity, need to take place. We may be glad that karma has brought us together here in a neutral region, where it is possible to speak about these matters with such complete openness, for it is not easy to speak about these things today. But it is good for anthroposophists to become familiar with these truths, since they should regard what is happening in the wider world as a stimulus to look behind the veil of events. There is much that must remain completely incomprehensible unless one is able to look behind this veil, for only then will things show themselves in their full significance. That is the end of Lecture 3 and the end of the first uh, subsection of the book, 
The next set of lectures in this book has a subsection title of The World as the Result of Balancing Influences.